Welcome to the Family Business AudioCast on LinkedIn. I'm Adam Smith, creator of this AudioCast series. I've been an entrepreneur, investment banker, and board leader for over 25 years. Today we have almost 50 registrants for today's call. Thank you for joining. The AudioCast will be recorded and shared at a later date as well to share with your network. Family business is a passion of mine, having grown up in a family of entrepreneurs and having engaged for almost two decades in a vast range of dialogues and business with fascinating family, entrepreneurs, and enterprises around the globe. I founded the Family Business AudioCast to offer a useful platform for listeners to hear from veterans, academics, and leaders in family-owned enterprises and family offices. Whether you're a seasoned family business leader, billionaire, or building a family office, these conversation should be enlightening. Today we welcome Ruby Hugeni. She is a family office consultant in Geneva in Europe, expert in asset management and art advisory with a focus on those areas as well as managing delicate relationships with family businesses around the world um, with a deep understanding of the complexities involved in managing and preserving wealth for high net worth individuals and families and their holding companies. Ruby has become a trusted advisor in the field. Her expertise lies in assisting clients in effectively managing their business assets within the family office context and offering valuable guidance on art investments and hard assets as well. Her insights have made her an invaluable resource for family businesses and their wealth preservation strategies. And over the years, I've worked with illustrious families and their CEOs or boards, including at BIC and LVMH. It's a pleasure to have Ruby as our guest today. Let's dive into the conversation. Ruby, thank you for joining us. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much. So um, we have about a half hour today. Um, let's start with your experiences as a family office consultant in general. How do you approach building trust and maintaining the uh, uh, the, the confidentiality and and connection to the family and their sensitive information over over the years? It's fascinating uh, the different projects you've been part. Well, first, I will refer. Hello. Yes, we can hear you. You can hear me. I will refer to my numerous years in assisting a number of chairmen of large French and international companies, where my job included their moral and reputational protection, and also establish their physical protection for them and their families during financial and political crises. For what I have witnessed and dealt with in unbelievable circumstances, I have learned how to build trust, be indispensable and truthful. Um, as a family office consultant, building trust and safeguarding the confidentiality of clients' sensitive information and assets are paramount to me. First, I have my own vision of confidential policy where I establish a, compre a comprehensive policy that meticulously outlines procedures for handling sensitive information. I have set a foundation of trust and demonstrate my commitment to confidentiality. I ensure that all involved parties, including employees and external associates, sign legally binding NDAs. This instills confidence in clients assuring them of their rigorous protection of their information. Of course, there are 
unbelievable situations where I was completely alone to take risky decisions, where my client wasn't reachable. This is another question. Mm-hmm. But I secured data management for them. I implemented state-of-the-art data security measures, and such as robust encryption, firewalls, and access control. By prioritizing the latest technologies, we fort- I fortify our clients' data against potential breaches. Then there comes limited access. I strictly control access to sensitive information, granting it only to employees with a genuine need. This minimizes the risk of unauthorized exposure and strengthens client trust in our our discretion. And then the more important uh, thing for me personally is ongoing staff training. This is key. I conduct regular training sessions to educate and empower the household team on confidentiality, data protection, and privacy. By fostering a culture of awareness, I elevate my commitment to preserving my client's trust. And you began working Sorry. with you began working with uh, chairman and CEOs way back um, in Credit Lyonnais. Uh, you began this type of level of work in uh, way back in 1993, uh, and then moving on to working with the family office at BIC, which is quite a large company. Uh, working to the chairman of 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 BIC, uh, and then to the fascinating. Uh, LVMH, of course, as we know, is depending on what day it is, is the uh, wealthiest uh, owner in the world. So you, it's interesting how, at a younger age, you began uh, working with these such important figures. Um, so maybe share some examples of some of the challenging situations you may have faced and how you navigate some of the uh, projects uh, with with these type of clients. Uh, well, uh, Freddie Lyonet is a at that time was a very was the first uh, large bank french large bank which was uh, like um, they had pol- really political and financial crisis at that time and the bank was sinking so uh, i was there to assist the chairman the new chairman uh, nominated by the government, and uh, during five years of crisis, I really um, had some some important matters to deal with uh, when assisting a chairman uh, doing uh, his um, be- created link between him and the rest of the world because yes, Fred uh, was known uh, in the world. Uh, to be a great bank, and it was uh, it was dying, it was sinking. So um, this was a great experience because at the end, uh, in the end, Prédillonnet has been um, has been bought by the Crédit Agricole, which is a French bank as well. Yes. So uh, it didn't leave in in the end. So this this led me to. Uh, another big company, which is BIC, a family business. And this is where I uh, happened to work for big families. 
from Vic, which is a, a great company as well. Uh, it's the um, great industry. And uh, I discovered the family office at Vic as well. I created a family office there, a private family office. Um, so that's for it the, for, for those listeners. Uh, Bic, we may uh, think of them as a um, a niche company, but uh, started back in 1945. It's almost two billion of revenue and uh, 10,000 employees. Quite a quite a large company. Um, so, what uh, what type of work did you do um, with Bic? And then walk us through your experience at LVMH at that time. Um, with the big, I work with the, uh, at big, I work with the, uh, the Baron big, who, uh, was the chairman and CEO of the, uh, of a company. Uh, he's the owner actually. And, uh, it's a family business at the same time. And I, uh, I was there to assist him in, uh, his, uh, in the business as well as in the family, uh, in his private family office. So uh, my 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 first um, my first uh, task was to create this family office in within his uh, mansion, mm -hmm. and uh, at the same time take care of the of the business side of the job. So it's a quite heavy position as well. Yes. And, and Bic has been more of a traditional, steady, uh, classic uh, family-held business in terms of its business operations. But if you compare that to LVMH, which has purchased and built and founded uh, many family-owned uh, brands over the years, it's uh, quite, a, quite a fascinating company. You started working there um, 21 years ago. Um, so how do you compare today's LVMH, for example, with what you saw back then? Well, uh, BIC is, uh, BIC at the time was a very, still is a very difficult, uh, family, uh, business to, to, uh, to work with because they, uh, it's, it's not, it's not a luxury product, you know, it's, it's different. Uh, it's it's the the, the Baron Dick, the father of the Baron, uh, started to uh, he did everything himself. He he created the product, the, the pen, the, the, the pen, the big pen that everybody knows. And uh, it's not it's not a luxury product. This is the difference. So uh, it's not a great profit. It, profit-making business, but it's large at the same time because it's known uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, LVMH is different because uh, it's luxury product, it's expensive, uh, rich people can uh, afford it, uh, whereas big, uh, everybody can afford it. What, what are your views on LVMH today? Do you think that they will continue to stay uh, where they are or will have the opportunity to keep um, even further? Uh, 
Yes, they 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 they, uh, they will grow uh, because the uh, their their brand is uh, is unique. Uh, I think today not everyone has a Neverfull bag. Uh, for example, <laughs> Louis Vuitton bag, Neverfull Louis Vuitton bag. It's uh, it's unique. So uh, I think it will grow and uh, until everyone. Uh, can afford it. Yes. So uh, yes, it's uh, it's uh, well. I call it a company that works by itself. The product is sold by itself. Mm. I like that. No, yes. no one can say he doesn't want uh, a Louis Vuitton bag. Right. That's what I think. That's good. Now, briefly, before you talk about the. Uh, the fun stuff with the mansions. Let's talk a bit about your time at the Federation Automobile and the, uh, your, your time with the Formula One and the chairman, uh, Jean Tolk. Tell us about that interesting experience you had uh, before your, your consulting business. Well, this is this is unique in my, uh, in my experience because uh, I never, I have never thought of working for for a federation. It's a federation is um, um, is 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 a, is a kind of uh, I, I can't say it's a company. It's not a company. It's it's a place where um, big companies, big automotive companies, will invest money inside, like Formula One, and uh, you don't produce. This is my vision. I, I have always worked in places where people produce. That's my first time where uh, we don't produce. We just uh, we just have to use the money of the autom automotive companies and build um, Grand Prix uh, uh, cars. So um, it was exciting. It was luxurious. It was uh, you you. You meet many people all over the world come to Geneva. Uh, yes, it's it, that's true. Um, but I, 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 I uh, that's not an exciting job. It's uh, it's just something which uh, just grows by itself, and uh, you are very well paid and uh, very well considered because it's a place of uh, luxury. And uh, the races are very, uh, very nice to watch, uh, even before the races. And uh, I think the best race is the Singapore one, which mm -hmm. I which I fancy actually. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I wasn't sure I was at I, I was at my place, but working with Jean-Todd is a great chance. You are lucky if you work with Jean-Todd. That's wonderful. It's a great well, man. It's great to see Formula One and also the eSports build up. Um, the revenues for uh, the Formula One were several billion, and some people think it's worth uh, over over $20 billion. It continues to grow. It's fascinating. Um, so moving moving on to, to art, um, for your family uh, offices and businesses, individual clients, you've um, grown to become an expert in um, 
in meeting their their needs in some of their art collection. Uh, I assume both both buying and selling, but there's also the transport side and and the confidentiality and privacy issues. Tell us tell us a bit about your view on the on the art market and um, what are these families looking for um, in collecting art? Um, do most of them hold for long term and pass it through the generations, or did they also buy and sell and trade in the market? Well, uh, I have worked with um, with uh, real French families who are very, uh, very, very attached to art. To, to uh, really to, I, I say always they are attached to art, but with the catalogue raisonné. The catalogue raisonné is a complete catalogue where you have uh, a, a range of uh, of art from one uh, one artist, one painter artist. You have the history of his life, all what he's uh, he has done, the, his his work, uh, and you can you can find these uh, these masterpieces in that catalog, and you can choose them and know where they are sold. Well, from my experience, what I did for my for my client is that he chose uh, five uh, five different uh, uh, art paintings in five catalogues raisonné. He was very uh, he fancied really uh, the, uh, the um, French artists like Monet, Cézanne, Degas. Uh, Renoir, Gauguin, and he he told me that these uh, paintings were to be sold in only one uh, one auction sale in London. And he stopped talking to me about this like uh, three weeks before. And every day he thought he asked me when is the sale? When are the sales? So every day I I had to tell him no, it's on that date. So so it be it came into my mind that I, I needed to organize this in yes. a strategical manner mm. and uh, have a private visit in London at the prestigious Option Sale House where these uh, masterpieces are exposed and right. put a price on each one of them. That was my strategy, actually. Mm. Yeah, I've seen. Uh a, especially the last five years, a significant amount of wealth that is being created from, from building and selling businesses is moving into hard assets in art um, and also real estate, of, of course, and cars, uh, but particularly art and modern art, um, moving away from the old masters into modern art and contemporary art, uh, I think except for perhaps a small portion of the, the watch uh, or the car market, vintage car market, uh, uh, parts of modern contemporary art are, are the most uh, rapidly appreciating assets in, in the world the last 10 years. Um, so it's not surprising that families will, will, will move more of their assets into that art. It's also more tradable in the primary market and the secondary markets. Um, so some of your projects involve um, restoring uh, castles, which is 
fascinating. Um, and we'd love to hear about your recent uh, project. You've obviously garnered a great deal of trust in uh, with your client um, to to enhance and manage the multi-year development of um, a recent uh, mansion. Um, so tell us tell us a bit about that. Well, I, as I said that in the beginning, uh, all these um, all these projects, uh, I, I, I'm very proud for having implemented all these projects, uh, and really, I'm I'm very um, emotional when I talk about this because uh, it's really a trust that has been built uh, during years. And uh, I know how to become an indispensable person to the client I'm working with. That's why one of my clients interests me with the renovation of his Louis uh, 16th century mansion. This uh, delicate mission, which was to be, uh, to be accomplished in nine months, uh, embellishing and re renovating the thousand square meter uh, private mansion classified as a French historical heritage site located in the heart of Paris uh, demanded a, a large budget and a tight schedule nine months it's not much and this was imperative so um, I I had to deal it it's um it's very strange because I, I learned so many things in place. This mansion, classified as a French heritage, uh, you cannot stop uh, renovation until you have dealt with the French Office of Architectural Heritage. So uh, I got to know the, these, uh, these, uh, these people uh, who are really uh, attached to French history. This is where you learn how history is uh, important in, uh, in uh, France. So uh, after that, I drew call for tenders with the help of a specialist. There also, I discovered that prestigious companies and craftsmen specialists have to be um, selected to carry out the embellishment. It's, uh, it's very unique. It's very, very unique. You, you need to choose uh, those, um, those companies uh, on, a, on a very small scale and uh, be well connected to them. Um, so that's from site meetings to inspection meetings, uh, visits, I learned day after day how history is connected to these mentions. So uh, after the structural works, the delicate task of finishing and decoration began. And uh, the headache was to uh, look for unsuspected props and know-how, such as the specialists in gold leaf, passionate decorators, and landscape designers, and renowned antique leaders, dealers, open their networks to me and show me the finesse of their world and their work. Moreover, the cherry on the cake here, should I say, <laughs> is uh, the winter garden. 
which was the real obsession of a family member. Uh, this garden was uh, decorated with unique pieces, such as a fountain from the Mughal period from India, 14th, 16th century. Who would have thought that someone, a family member, would ask uh, for a fountain coming from the Mughal period, 16th century in India? This, this was completely unbelievable. So this also was a was a, ta a very hard task to find this fountain, and I did it. I I, I managed to did it. This um, I delivered a project to this client on time and on budget, and uh, the result was spectacular. Wonderful. Uh, uh, we won't be able yeah. to see that, but uh, we can see on your LinkedIn a a photo or two, but. It seems like there's a tremendous amount of um, classic real estate in Europe, and particularly in France and Italy, of these of chateaus and mansions that have not are not making their way through the generations and are available for purchase either for profit or nonprofit. What is what is going to happen with all of these chateaus around uh, France, in particular, in, in Europe, uh, in the in the coming years? Well, I think that um, most of them will be sold to people who really uh, have the, uh, the funds to renovate uh, those chateaux. And um, as I said, it's, it's, these are very unique mentions and you really need a lot of money to, to renovate those chateaus. And, um, and also this makes France the most beautiful, uh, especially Paris, the most beautiful city in the world, as I've always mentioned. And I think that we, uh, With that, uh, well, years after years, you will, <laughs> you will have people um, investing in this, in these chateaux and mentions. I'm confident about that and I'm prepared to assist in that. Oh, great. That's, that's wonderful. Some, I think um, some of the chateaus will be purchased by nonprofits as well, um, or even leadership or think tanks, and have events in them that are not just residential. I think that would be that would be a trend as well. Yes, because uh, those are family uh, chateaus mentions where you have uh, you know. Um, Old French families are, before you had uh, big families with many children, and those chateaus are so big that you cannot sell a chateau, a chateau tomorrow. It's, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So what they do, they uh, rent it to, uh, for example, LBMH, LBMH, LBMH for uh, your fashion, uh, you know, défilé. And uh, this also brings a lot of, uh, of uh, fund to renovate the chateau. Uh, most families have done this. I, I will compare this to uh, the, main, the palaces in Rajasthan in India. What happened after Indira Gandhi took the, the power? He, the, 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 the Maharajas, uh, started to go to work like everyone, like me, like you. 
So what happened to the palaces? They had to do something with the palaces. So they create hotels, five-star five star hotels. And so I, I am comparing this it's just to say how you can renovate the chateau is by renting them for uh, defilés in France, hotels in India, in Rajasthan, and uh, with the funds you renovate them. When you you want you don't want to sell them, or wait for the good uh, purchaser. Right. Um, something else you mentioned in terms of your um, the craft of managing. Um, challenging and personal relationships with the family business owners is this concept of of quiet diplomacy um, which cuts across the uh, political landscapes but also all the way down to the individual families and relationships um, which you note is a term to de describe events that take place behind closed doors and without the, the strict confines of, of dip, diplomatic protocol, not just at the country level and international relations, but also with, with the families and with their vendors and across the, across the family itself. Like, just to finish up um, today, it would be great to hear your thoughts on um, the, the tremendous um, expansion of, of wealth and families and the businesses that they own and how those those operating businesses will transition through the second and third and fourth generation. Do you think um, that, especially for those um, G2 and G3 families, uh, the, the children in their 30s, let's say, do you think that um, more of those, of those family members will retain uh, management and control of the businesses, or do you think there'll be um, a lot of them for sale to to pass move them on? Well, there is a saying. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard that, but when I was working at the big family business, I happened to hear a saying from my from my uh, chairman who said, uh, "You know, Ruby, my father created the the company." Uh, I uh, developed it, uh, but the third generation is said to not to be very inter in interested in developing it. Well, I don't know how true is this, but I, 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 uh, I have the ability to talk to the three generations. Um, from my perspective now, I see that the third generation is struggling. The third generation struggles. Um, it's uh, it's because of the modernism. I, I, I don't know how you, I don't know how to call this, but I have this particular example where I have seen three generations. Uh, yes, the third generation is struggling. Um, and um, perhaps because of the of a good um, working capital they have, and they say, okay, we don't have to to do as the father or the grandfather has done. Sixty percent of their, um, as I say, uh, of their profit comes from uh, from the United States, and it works well there. Is there any? Um, 
interest for them to develop in Europe, to develop in Europe or uh, uh, in Asia. Uh, all this is is, be, is getting difficult today because those countries also in Southeast Asia, in Asia, are uh, do not want. They want joint ventures. They don't want uh, companies to establish. They want to do joint ventures with those companies. I not. I understand also the um, the, the difficulties. Uh, but if you compare to LVMH, uh, it's it's unique. As I said, it's only LVMH who can do it. There is no joint venture that you can do with LVMH. You see. Hmm. So it depends on what product you. Um, that's why the generations, the, the, the sons, uh, daughter of Bernard Arnault, uh, they have the same culture as their father and their grandfather. You see, you have three generations right. at the uh, LVMH and you have three generations at BIC. Those two companies I know very well. And you see how the generations, uh, the, the, the actual generations is working. The culture at LVMH uh, is still uh, unique, but the culture uh, at BIC is is changing. Well, it's very inspiring. I think in America, uh, as a newer country, uh, we have a lot of large businesses. Less of them are privately owned, uh, but uh, I think that American businesses that are family owned moving into the second generation um, and third generation, which many of our listeners I can see are involved in the uh, the asset allocation and the consulting and the family office work for these family businesses um, can look to Europe for some some lessons. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, great talk today. Um, we will be uh, recording this and sending it out. Um, I'd like to thank our family business audiocast attendees today, and our esteemed guest uh, Ruby uh, Eugenie, a, a unique veteran specializing in estate management and family business assets and art advisory. Uh, thank you for joining today. Really enjoyed your time. Um, your, your insights on the client trust and the, the context of family offices working uh, across the generations is, uh, is fascinating. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, everyone. This is Arden Smith. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs>